Welcome to Generation Ag, a podcast for the future of agriculture. I'm Kayla. And I'm Lavinia. And we're a couple of young Aggies passionate about celebrating our industry and sharing the stories of people who work in it. and a very happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of Generation Ag. It is Kayla here today. I just wanted to quickly wish all of our listeners a very happy National Ag Day for Friday just gone. Um, We salute every single person who listens to this podcast, who either works in or around or contributes in any way to the agriculture industry. It is the best industry in the world and we are just so privileged to be a part of it. I'm not going to faff on for any longer because today's guest and I recorded for almost 50 minutes and all that means is that there was a ton of good stuff. Today's guest shared some amazing nuggets of wisdom around being a leader in business and getting an agricultural business or any business really off the ground and the lessons he's learned along the journey. Um, So without further ado, let me introduce you to today's guest. His name is David Edgerton Warburton and he is the CEO of Master Group. Master Group are better known for their flagship software, AgriMaster. David is a sixth generation farmer and a second generation software developer. He graduated from Uresk Institute before spending the next eight years managing the family farm business. In the year 2000, David, along with his wife Natalie and his father Kent, formed the specialist software company now known as AgriMaster. I'll let David tell you all about the ins and outs of AgriMaster, but David's mission with AgriMaster is to empower farmers to run successful farm businesses whilst meeting the food needs of the planet. His career today poses a unique challenge, navigating the evolution of a 39-year-old piece of software to remain accessible to rural farm businesses with poor to no internet whilst catering for the demand of online and tech-savvy users. David shares so much in this episode, so I hope you'll stick around for the whole thing. Without further ado, let me introduce you to David. All right, well, David, thank you so much for joining me on the Generation Ag podcast today. We're delighted to have you on. Um, We're sitting in your beautiful new offices. Um, Must feel pretty good to look around and see where AgriMaster's at right now. Yeah, certainly. Um, thanks, Carla. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's. Um, I think I, I did a talk um, a couple or well, last week actually, and I was talking about this is our, I think our, our third or fourth office since we've been in Perth, uh, yeah. and our first one was our potting shed at the back of our house. <laughs> um, so yeah, and it and it's really nice. It's nice to have nice offices and yeah. nice space for all the team to work. And yeah, yeah, it is really nice. It's beautiful. Um, it is a, actually it's been a good opportunity. You had a little tour around. Yeah, we had um, all our rooms are named. All our meeting rooms are named after our journey as well. So yeah. the one we're in is named after my father, actually. So yeah, beautiful. Um, speaking of journeys, the first place we always start on the podcast is to ask, "Who are you, and what's your connection to agriculture?" Yeah, so I'm. Um, I am um, from Coconut Boy, so um, I'm the sixth generation um, sheep farmer from the Great Southern WA. Yeah. Um, so really, it's been in my blood my whole life. Um, so yeah, and and uh, my I grew up um, about 50k southwest of Coconut. Um, like most kids of my age, picking sticks and rocks and clearing <laughs> land. With um, uh, spent my um, when coming home from boarding school. Um, 
clearing land when everyone else was going to the beach. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so long, long term um, in ag. Um, so, and I was a farmer for um, after, well, we talk about going to Muresk. And so I was a farmer for eight years mm. from 92 to 2000, yeah. Wow. Could you maybe share a few more stories from your childhood? Did you have some really, you were just telling me about your siblings before we got on air. Um, do you have some fond memories of what you get up to on the farm and what it was like yeah. at the time? Yeah, I remember um, talking to my mum. You know, it was all very typical farm stuff. So, you know, motorbikes and yeah. guns and cubbies and, <laughs> you know. Um, I remember it used to be a lot wetter. My brother and I in the winter, we used to love the winter because all our dams used to overflow. Yeah. Um, and... We used to, and they used to grow Guilford grass in the overflows. My brother and I used to use them as slides. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we used to really love that. And then we used to go and get all the water and pour it onto the dam banks. We're all made out of a, a type of a, a white yellow clay and then build these slides and used to go home. And obviously mum used to not to be too impressed with our jeans torn with all the rocks that were actually in the clay <laughs> and, and they're covered in mud. But, you know, um, when, when I first had... Our, Nat and I um, first had our um, first boy Harrison and I went to my mum for advice and she goes what did you do and she goes oh well you know your brother knew if I, if I saw you wander past the kitchen window with a coil of wire and an axe and a gun I sort of knew what you're up to and yeah, <laughs> and I knew you'd be back for a feed you know? <laughs> so it's a very typical farm yeah. type upbringing really but I really, I mean, I really loved it, which is why I went farming. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just enjoyed every bit of it. Yeah, that's so, it sounds so familiar, but um, it's never, never less, um, I guess, nostalgic hearing about it f- from people such as yourselves, guests yeah. we have on the podcast, talking about what it was like growing up. It's very different to be in the mud and, for, you know, the stick picking and the rock picking that we all used to be, uh, what's the word, enlisted to do when we grew up on yeah, the farm. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, I never really... You know, um, my dad used to, um, we used to walk, like mum used to drive the ute and my brother and I were out in the wings and dad at the back and picking sticks and rocks and we used to throw them on the ute and and, um, dad used to pay us $2 an hour to pick sticks and rocks (laughs) and he used to charge us a dollar an hour for the use of his ute. (laughs) And... um, and uh, yeah, I don't think I really enjoyed it at the time, but I saved up enough money during that time. So when I went to boarding school, I could afford a stereo and a bike <laughs> <laughs> for all those people who didn't have streaming music by then. <laughs> yeah. So um, you went off to boarding school then. Where did you go? Um, yeah, so I got packed off to um, Christchurch at well, um, year eight, so yeah. 13, just 13. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's always a... A bit of a journey, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. So um, I was there with two hundred other boarders. Yeah. Um, which in those days was the vast majority were just all the other farm boys from around the state. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it was interesting though because we also met a lot of um, people who kids whose parents worked all around the world. So yeah. people who worked in the oil rigs in the Emirates and in Singapore. And yeah. So it was actually really my first real introduction to the world. Mm-hmm. outside of Kojanup, really. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, that a boarding school experience really opens up your eyes to so many things and it really sort of promotes that independence at quite a young age as well when you're going at, what were we doing, 13, 14? Yeah, yeah, 13, yeah. I think um, you do get independent very quick. You know, it can be a little Lord of the Flies-ish to yeah. start with. Um, <laughs> but someone else, uh, some of our friends who don't go and couldn't imagine sending their children, I said, so what was it like? Did you? And I said, I can't remember even thinking about whether it was an option or not. You just mm. knew at when you were, you know, 13, you would just go and all your friends went and 
it wasn't seem didn't seem to be a um, mm. like you had a I don't know should I go or shouldn't I go you just everybody yeah. just went yeah it was yeah. just part of the cultural infrastructure of yeah how you kind of just knew that yeah if you wanted to continue on through school that was just what had to happen yeah, yeah. and um, you know and it was it was a rural community in the city mm-hmm. really um, and in back in those days for better or for worse your schoolhouse that you competed in was also your boarding house yeah and so it was like almost like a a house of like a footy team you know you, you <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was the day boys versus the borders you know yeah no that sounds so fun uh, yeah after that you obviously graduated and then you went off to Muresk which is such a rite of passage for so many in uh Western Australia tell us about that time yeah um I actually took a year off so I I went to the UK for a while and um I was going to stay there the whole time and I I got a call um, halfway through my gap year to say, look, you didn't do so well in one of your ATAR subjects. If you want to get into your business degree, you're going to have to come back. So I came back and, and completed that unit and then just worked on the farm for the rest of the year. But going to Muresh, yeah, it's, it was. it was What I loved about it, it was by the time I went, it was called a Bachelor of Business. So it, yeah. it sort of progressed a bit after that as well. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a big campus. Um, so I went there from 84 years, 89 to 92 or so. Um, and it was a very big campus. We'd, we'd just built another on-campus accommodation. So there was three accommodation units. We just built new lecture theatres. It was, mm-hmm. it was, we were still running a whole school farm at that point. Yep. So it was halfway between what was the original diploma and a degree then. Um, but yeah, it was, I think, you know, if it wasn't so much fun, you probably could have done it in two years, really, yeah. <laughs> really like all degrees. Yeah. But yeah, you know, amazing traditions, great time, lots of people I still see every day. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like my, my younger brother, Rob, went to Marcus and, you know, it's the same thing. You know, yeah. if you, you, you go travel all around Australia, you bump into all these people from, yeah. from these different ag universities, you know, and it's, it's, it's as much about the things you do when you're there and the people you meet as much as the... Yeah. As, the, as the study really it's so interconnected I, yeah I love hearing about um, people's experiences at Muresk because you'll meet so many people who are you know doing amazing things in their career in the industry these days who had their start at Muresk and um, it's such a special place and I think once you get older you remember you see people now my age and they're in these incredibly um, responsible senior roles all through <laughs> agribusiness you can remember them at 19 they weren't so uh, responsible back then <laughs> yeah Oh, goodness. So what about your career since then? What have you gone? What what was your first step out of the door from Muresk? And then what happened after that? I harbored ambition. So I always loved this idea of this, um, like we're talking about a bit off air, this mixture between industries like agri, mm. business. Um, my The other side of my family, my mum, her family were in the fashion business. So, wow. um, and so I always, although I spent nearly all my life on the farm, I had this very urban family as yeah. well who related to other businesses. So I was always interested in a bit of both. So I, I harbored um, an ambition to be a consultant originally, yeah. um, and which is a fairly traditional path for people leaving. And, and But I thought, you know, leaving uni, I thought I knew everything. And once going down that path a little bit, I realized how little I actually knew. <laughs> um, I think you leave university with a degree, but you don't really know anything yet. And um, so... Um, I got the opportunity to go home and take over the family farm. So mm-hmm. my father was um, wanting to do spend a bit more time on software then, and so I took took over the farm midway through '92, yeah. 
Um, and I was very, very lucky to have a father who, um, unlike most people my age, gave me full run of the business. So um, I didn't work for him, essentially. He really worked more like a mentor rather than a boss. Yep. Um, so we were running... Um, a lot of wool back then. Um, pretty within a few years, I'd converted probably 40% of the farm to um, grain growing. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd gone from like 11 DSE up to nearly 18 DSE, growing a lot more wool. Um, started experimenting in 93 with growing canola, which is really early back then. Yeah. Um, you know, no till. There's a whole lot of stuff. And so, um, I love that pushing the edge of what's possible in agriculture. That's what I really enjoyed about it, being yeah. a farmer. Look, I've got to admit, there's a lot more people who made much better money than I did following <laughs> the um, very staid and true path, but yeah. that's never where I've got my enjoyment from. Um, I was lucky my father um, stopped me and then my brother when he came home in the mid-90s from doing the really dumb stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, but he also gave us, um, the room to experiment, to try and to, and we were lucky we had some really good advisors around us, people like Kevin Bell and people like that, who were just, he, we would just come, my brother and I would just say, I reckon we're going to try this. Yeah. And he'd go, never been done before, but let me do some research. He'd go out and because he was a, he was actually a veterinary um, surgeon by, um, trade or vet by trade, he would go back and do a whole lot of research and come back and goes, I reckon we can do it. I found a whole lot of research in the pig industry. We might be able to adapt it to sheep, you know? Yeah. So he was really good like that. So we had good people around us um, and it allowed us to really experiment and try. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my family was always involved a lot in research and connection to universities and stuff. So, um, yeah, it um, really helped. You know. Yeah. So you, then you pivoted. Well, from what from the outside, it seems like you pivoted quite sharply into the IT software side mm. of things. What was that transition like in you know in real time for you? What, how did that come about? Yeah, it's not as sudden as you'd think. It's mm. like it's it's like all these things. It's it's a lot more boring in reality than it looks on the outside. <laughs> yeah. um, so, like I said before, our family was really heavily involved in research all the time. Um, so we've actually had um, computerized farm records in our farm business since 1967, um, which is quite unusual. And that's because when my father um, got his bush block and started clearing land in 1967 with his new Perth bride, my mum, she's pretty brave, um, and um, his father introduced him to two ag economists at the University of Western Australia, um, Henry Shapra and uh, Dr. Roger Maldoon. And they were the head of the farm economics department there. And my father became part, like a, a contributor farmer or a, as part of that economics unit. And him and probably about 70 other other farmers. Yeah. Um, which means all his um, budgets, cash books, budget actual comparison reports are all done through the UWA computer. So he used to go up there and put the punch cards in and wow. send satchels of books up and down. So he got really early exposure to software and computers and stuff right through the 60s and 70s. So... Um, and we're quite a nerdy family, so he was also an amateur photographer and a whole lot of other things. But so when personal computers started taking off, I can remember my father sitting um, when it used to be a tiny little article, this IT article in the, in the Australian. It used to be like one or two columns at the back of the paper. And he'd go, oh, look what's happening here and look what's happening here. And, and eventually he saved up back then. It was a lot of money. I think it was about four and a half thousand dollars or something or wow. nearly eight thousand. I can't remember. 
um, and bought himself an Osborne One computer back in 1980 <laughs> and um, went to a course and learned to write in MBASIC. Um, and so that's when I was 10. So he, well, I've had, a, I've had a, a PC in my home since I was 10 years old. I can remember my friend um, Kim Stewart, another Cojunut boy, we, we wrote our first bit of software when we were 11 by getting a book out of the library and, <laughs> and doing some stuff. So it was something I was exposed to really most of my young life mm -hmm. uh, but I was never interested in it um, I was like you know it's like all these things you have it I never played a game I'm really bad at them <laughs> um, I can't write code um, <laughs> although I really love it and appreciate it um, but yeah so my um, so oh but I loved farming so that was the journey for me Muresque I, I followed my father into amateur photography and yeah and I used to have a dark room in my bedroom for <laughs> developing photos and I was a really nerdy kid and um, so but the passion for farming really took over um, and farming and business I can remember I, I spent when I was in London in the um, 80s early 88 it was it was back at the peak of the last sort of the really when business was a big deal it's a bit like the boom here yeah, yeah. in the 90s and and I, got, and I fell in love with the idea of business i knew nothing about it right? <laughs> and so when i could combine both um really really leading edge business and agriculture together was really exciting for me mm -hmm. so um so now what really kicked it off was um my wife business partner fellow director nat right she's kind of like um we're really like a joint CEO of this business. And, yeah. and the, the credit for really getting what is the business today goes to her. So she, um, I met Nate, she was my bank manager <laughs> in Gojana. Um, oh, well, one of them. So we had Greg James and Nat and a few other. And so I met Nat while buying a farm in 94. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we were married in 97. And, and at the same year we were married, they actually closed the branch that she was the site manager of at the time. Yeah. And um, so she needed a new career because she'd married this local farmer and couldn't take a promotion to the city or anything. So yeah. <laughs> um, so she started off um, private consulting in, in and setting up, um, helping people set up their farm books mm. and also internet banking at the time. So well, it wasn't internet banking, it was desktop banking back yeah. then. And... Um, and that then flew into, um, we needed to expand. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking two days off the farm. We hired a workman to help my brother and I. And I started taking two days a week to help Nat expand the business. And so then we both um, formed a new business called um, Nuju. Mm -hmm. And that went national. So we developed a national training company. We built new offices on the farm. Yeah. Um, we used to have fiber, optic fiber linked for the internet between our house and our office near the sheds. <laughs> in 98 <laughs> um when we had dial up internet and and what happened is by accident we became um i was you know we ended up having seven staff around australia mm. and a whole lot of stuff and then the opportunity came about with my father with his software so he never re really was in the business of of software he just liked writing it and um he had a distributor at the time he did a really good job of getting agromaster out there and a lot of people would have known country soft back then mm. And so we decided to merge um, our, our software and support business with his software business. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to come together in um, 2001. We merged the two businesses together. Um, Nat and I quit farming. Well, I quit farming mm -hmm. um, with our four-month-old son at the time. It was a big move. We, Harry was four months old. We'd, um, 
you know, I decided to quit farming, decided to move to Perth, buy our first house, rent our first wow. office. It was a, it was a massive year. Um, and the aim was to try, the whole aim was we just wanted this single service for customers where they could have software, they could get support from the same people who wrote it in the same yep. office, they could get training, consulting. So at the time, we are a bigger training company than we were a software company at the yep. time. Um, and then we had to learn about software. So my father, I, I obviously, like I said, I was, I was into farming, not software. So we had to hire our software, first software team in 2002. <laughs> and um, yeah, and the, and the rest went on from there. So it wasn't such a massive pivot. Um, um, it's like all businesses. They look, they look sometimes remarkable from the outside, yeah. but inside it's more like, you know, head down, bum up, <laughs> yeah. grinding it out. But it's... it's it's not so much about me. It was a really a big joint effort between Nat and I. You know, um, I always say I'm chaos, she's control. Um, <laughs> um, and we bring different skills, but we've really always acted as like a joint CEO right through having a young business and having a young family at the same time. And that's so incredibly unique. Not, not many people would be fortunate enough to have that sort of strong a family relationship, but then also your working relationship with your partner as well. Yeah, but... Like um, in rural life, it's pretty normal, isn't it? So you That's know, Nat, true. Yeah. Nat, Nat's a Katanning girl. She's a farm girl from Katanning. And same with me. You know, her parents were a business partnership. Her grandparents were a business partnership. Mm-hmm. You know, my, all of my family going back six generations from me all worked in um, husband-wife business partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, so when um in urban areas it seems like a really unusual thing yeah right but anyone from the country it's kind of like well isn't that how everyone does business (laughs) um yeah and i actually think it's a really really important part and and the next generations i would encourage them to do the same i think um and i'd encourage my boys we got three sons and i'd say if you can Mm. do it do it right because when you build something together as a couple Mm. um right from the beginning it, that's really strong, you know, like, mm. you know, you're not just building a family, you're building a business, you're building everything. And I think when you're both sort of in building um, something together, it actually is something much stronger about that. And so yeah. I'd encourage anyone to do it. I always say to my boys, make sure you marry poor. Um, <laughs> because when you build something together, it's actually, it makes you a lot stronger. You know, it's stressful. It's really stressful. And yeah. it's hard to leave business at work. Yeah. But... It, um, I think uh, I would do it any day and I would encourage anyone to do it any day. That's amazing. So over the last, well, what's coming up to 20 years next year then um, of AgriMaster, you've scaled the business quite dramatically. Do you want to share some of the highlights of the journey along the way and maybe some of the lessons and learnings as well? Oh, look, I think, oh, the lessons. It, it's, it's never as easy as you plan it to be. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, anyone who owns a business knows that, you know, that, that it's never linear. Mm-hmm. Um, we've made a lot of mistakes and I, and I know all our customers out there have, have, have experienced those, you know, like, so we have been, business humbles you all the time. You think you've got it right and you think, okay, we'll do this, we'll do that. We've heard this and people want this and, but it, it continues to humble you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, business itself is not that difficult in, in, in essence, right? So mm. every business is really just um, make more than you spend. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, find, fill a, find a need, fill a need. Like I always said, um, I was, when my kids were little, there was this, this kids movie and many people watched it called Robots. 
and there's this character called Mr. Big World and, and, a, and a young star, like an entrepreneur, a kid called Rodney Copperpot, I remember. And he goes, what's the secret to business? And he goes, it's really simple, son. He goes, find a need, fill a need. <laughs> you know, and that's it. You know, do customers, do people in the community want that? Is there a problem to solve, mm. right? Well, then solve it the best way you can. And listen, and what I love about business is business is, and this is why I like the idea of business solving problems, because unlike politics, you get voted on every single day, <laughs> yeah. right? We're telling the story about the supermarket. People said, I wish they stocked this sort of food in the supermarket or more this or more that. And I said, well, if you don't buy it, people won't grow it or stock it, yeah. you know? It's the same with business. If we don't do the right thing by customers, they stop being customers. Mm-hmm. Like it's very real every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so although the the PL and balance sheet of business stuff, I find very easy mm-hmm. and lucky I've got great support with Nat because she's really good at that stuff. It's the people side. My big lessons in business is always people. Like people always say business is, oh, it's just business. No, I, I actually completely disagree with that statement. It's mm. always personal. Mm. Business is always personal. Um, it's, you remember, everybody turns up every day in their life, whether they're farming, whether they're in software, whether they're in support, whatever, wanting to do a good job. Yeah. Right? Um, and if they're not, what's in the way? So, the, you know, the, the leaders like me get in the way by creating stuff that makes it not a great place. Um, are we not communicating right? Are we using the wrong words? There's so much that goes into it because humans, we're just messy, complicated <laughs> bunch of meat you know like we're and so i'd find most of the lessons that have humbled me in business Mm. are actually people lessons if you get the people right it's it's not easy but it's a lot easier after that Mm -hmm. um but from a practical point of view it's about rhythms and cash flow and this is where nat's my rock star right so if I actually really quite enjoy mentoring young businesses, right? And I go, just because you've got a good idea doesn't make you a business person. It makes mm. you a smart person with a good idea, <laughs> right? Yeah. Business is a little bit more boring than that, right? It's about cash flow. It's about mm. profit. It's about um, good, if you're in an industrial business like farming, it's about good HR and oh s It's mm. about, there's so many really core boring things. Um, we're in the Kent room, my father, and there's a, I'm going to write a book about Kentisms, but he used to say you've got to do all the very ordinary things extraordinarily well, right? <laughs> yeah. And that comes down to financial management. I don't care how much you hate it. If you do it, I'd say do it. For example, here, we reconcile our books every single week. Mm-hmm. We do a budget actual comparison report at least once a month. We review our budget every single month and completely alter it based on what's happening in the world mm-hmm. um you know you have to be flexible you have to be adaptable because plans never pan out mm-hmm. um i'm a big fan of a um there's his german um prussian general prussian general from back in the um 18th century called helmut montvolki and he used to say he's both best quoted as saying no plan survives contact with the enemy <laughs> um and um, and any plan is a list of expediencies. And I would say that, so in this business, in any of our farm businesses, any of the same, I'd say the same thing. You know, plan really well 
and then alter it every time the world changes. And yeah. and, and that's my big lesson for business because business is not about just a good idea. It's execution is everything. Mm. And execution is boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, really. Um, and But if you do it well, like if you as a business keep really good financial records, do really good forecasts, measure against those forecasts, really focus on your people, both recruiting, looking after them, looking what keeps them motivated. So we're not mm. motivated by money. Mm. Um, you know, what it has to be right. But you know what I mean? There's a whole lot of other stuff to that. And if you do all those little things right, you'll actually really enjoy your journey. Yes, you're going to get challenges and all that stuff, but you'll actually really enjoy it. Yeah. For the listeners who are maybe unfamiliar, um, what is the suite of Master Group now for anyone who's unfamiliar with it? Yeah, we um, so Master Group. So we're best known for our flagship product, AgriMaster. Mm-hmm. Um, AgriMaster has changed a lot over the years, but at its core, it's exactly the same, right? So AgriMaster's uh, it's it's a management um, product. So it's it's got a few jobs. The first job mainly is budgeting or cash flow modelling. Mm-hmm. So farming, most people in farming uh, have got lumpy cash flow, high capital risk. Yeah. A whole lot of stuff. So, so our job is to help farmers model this um, limited allocator of capital to create as much profit as they can and reduce risk. Mm-hmm. So it's about good cash flow forecasting. The first thing people always use that for is getting money out of the bank. That's pretty important, <laughs> right? But secondly, it's about how do you manage the risk associated. You have production risk all every day. You have market risk mm-hmm. every day. You have how much money we're going to commit to inputs. And you've got to balance those three levers all the time, mm. right? And then you've got things like GST flows and interests and all those other things added onto. Now, if you get that mix, and you, so you, you need a model because it's impossible to predict what's going to happen in the future, especially mm-hmm. in ag with so much market and production risk all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's giving people a really solid framework where they can just go along and change small variables and they can see, okay, if wheat price drops by um, 20 bucks, how that can affect my peak debt or my, yeah. or my long-term cash flow or... You know, can I afford, if I go and buy the farm next door or a new header or something like that, what's the cash flow impact of that? And how, is that going to affect my equity and a whole lot of other stuff? Now, banks want to know that stuff. Yeah. But we noticed that, that our most successful farmers are also the most successful um, managers of cash flow and capital. Yeah. Um, the second thing is obviously accounting. Now, the accounting component of it is really important because um, the accounting component really tells you where you're at mm. right now not from a tax point of view that's the boring stuff we do tax really well but it's more about okay how much money am i spending on machinery is it time to replace it you know where am i making money where am i losing money because next year you're going to come along and plan your business for the next year and go okay how did i go last year and what should i adjust this year based on that performance so you yeah. do have to have both sides um you know, and then there's all the cloud products like the the file management and stuff like that. We've we've made a few furors into um, small business, but yeah. what we found with Reap and with um, Business Master and things like that. But what we found as a business is that we do much better when we focus on our core. We you know we're really good at ag. Yeah. We know about that other stuff, but it's not really our passion or our core. So we've decided yeah. to focus all of our business purely in the ag space. Wow. 
I really love the journey um, and it's so cool because you sort of touched on it before but we're sitting in the offices and, and all the rooms and um, boardrooms around us are labelled with things that are really important and part of the AgriMaster journey and I loved um, you know, how you started out wanting people to have access to the customer service and then also the developers and they can ask questions and, and Katie just walked me through the office before and it's so amazing to see the developers sitting right by the customer service team and um, how as a customer you can call up and I'm sure you know get really urgent answers and and to to things that when things don't work well in agriculture we kind of it's really important and quite impactful so I love being in here and seeing how it's all set out now in 2020 and just to look where I'm sure you could only have imagined it was going to look like when you started out in 2001. I think like every business owner you can't imagine where you're going to be. Um, This this setup here you can see is actually very deliberate so for example we wanted the idea is that all these disciplines like communication, um, support, Dev, all to be in the same. We have a product team that um, that our senior leaders of each of those teams are part of, mm. and so when we're deciding what to do with product, software development, customer service, um, sales, marketing, everybody is in there making those product decisions mm-hmm. together, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're taking okay, this is because you customer service listen to our customers all day, yeah, and sales the same and and messaging and then the market people doing research you know and so all that's combined to try and go okay we have the struggle we have thousands of customers rather yeah. than one so it's trying to listen to that voice and when they're all working together you get really unique answers like the development go oh we're going to do this and customer service go have you ever thought of doing it like this and they go oh no you, that cross pollination again mm. is really important mm, that's so cool um i'm just going to read you back something in your linkedin bio you refer to yourself as a champion of progressive <laughs> business models um what does that mean to you what, what why why is that something that you you know feel so strongly about to put on your linkedin bio um look that actually came about like uh, it's certainly in this business but i'll i'll, I'll answer that in two ways First of all, very quickly in this business. In this business, for example, the idea is I would say a perfect business in, in the context of an urban business like AgriMaster is when it first starts. You know, there's no HR, there's no, everyone's 100% committed, there's no handoffs, there's all these issues. So my strive is, okay, that's the core of a business. So how do you get as close to that as you can? So we run an agile um, software company here. And what I love about that, and most people find it's crazy, we have no management. We have self-organizing, self-managing teams. Mm-hmm. All those teams are part of a product team together. You know, there is strong guidance and rails that we run on. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, is you hire all these very intelligent people, just let them get on with it, yep. you know, um, and try and not get in the way. I think I've done more damage by getting in the way of smart people <laughs> than the other way around. And don't think that you have all the answers, Yeah. right? So that's my job is to lead, not to tell, Yeah. right? Now, in farm business... I am actually really excited what's happening in farm business right now. Like I've had the privilege to travel around the country a fair bit before COVID. And especially your generation are coming up with some incredibly innovative farm business models. And I would strongly encourage them to keep going that way, right? Mm -hmm. There's people, I've met people who've come home, they've only got a small farm actually in Queensland in one case. Uh, but they have all this experience in banking and agribusiness. So they joined with them. So they made contacts in somewhere else and they raised funds and then they created these new management structures and got four other farms involved and they're running these massive operations now. Mm-hmm. Now, traditionally, that person in my age would have come home to a 400 hectares beef farm and gone, oh, gone, just and ground it out. 
Yeah. Now they might be running a five, ten million dollar agri business mm-hmm. with all these partners and capital coming. I love that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love this idea of um, when I grew up. I, grew, I went to um, school and and Muresk especially with a whole lot of people who came from urban areas who'd love to go into agriculture. And the only option they had back then, really, was they ended up in the ag department or as consultant or into banking or something like that. Now there's these new innovative funds coming out mm. to help people who have got a passion for ag yeah. into ag, even if they don't have the luxury that I grew up with, with the, mm. of having family farms. Um, and, and in my experience, people from outside of ag will reimagine it. Yeah. They will see it in a different way. It won't be just wheat and sheep. You know, <laughs> it, you know they'll do horticulture different. They'll do wheat different. They'll do it. There's a great story down in Albany. Um, I was I was told this story about a, a Perth couple who were doing a tree change, and they bought this block somewhere between Cojump and Albany, Cranbrookie Way, I think, and and everyone laughed at them because they'd bought this salt-infested property, right? <laughs> and in typical form, what they did is they go, well, "What do you do with the salt-infested property?" And they go, "Oh well, we got salt water. What grows in salt water? Oh, fish." So they went to the Albany Ag Department and go, well, "What will grow in this thing?" And they end up digging out all these big salty paddocks. And with because it had so much groundwater, yeah, and they've grown barramundi in it, yeah. And I just love that. And I yeah. go, every other farmer just fences off and says, "Oh, salty land." And, yeah. And and when I talk about innovative business models, that's what I love. You know, like, and I think our generation did a little bit, but I think the current, um, what I say, the current generation, which are taking over ag, which are the millennial generation, mm-hmm. are doing some really exciting stuff in this space. Mm-hmm. And I'd encourage them to push. I would encourage them to push back on the existing business models as hard as you can. I really do. Like, yeah. Um, just because it's always done like that, it doesn't. You have if you come from a family farm, you had the advantage of a big capital base. Leverage it. Use it. Mm-hmm. Right. It does. Even if you want into growing, I don't know, lettuces in in tunnels. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have capital, pair up with capital. You know what capital mainly is? It's dumb. So capital needs brains. If you've got brains, find capital. Perfect marriage. Yeah. You know? Oh, there you go, guys. There's, a, there's the word right there from a very experienced uh, businessman, a charge to the millennials about going for it. Um, I want to know, uh, you know, we sort of touched on a little bit just then. I'd love to know what you think some of the biggest changes have been in our agriculture industry throughout your career. Look, I think in, in my time in ag, there was obviously massive changes in production. We, we were lucky really is because you know we went from you know you know one ton wheat yields to three ton wheat yields and we had the no-till revolution and we had the agronomic red you know so when i was farming we had amazing we had access to all those early chemicals and fertilizers and soil testing and so in hindsight it was pretty easy really like you know we thought it was pretty tough at the time but we made massive yield so i remember our our farm with wool even we went from growing 30 kilos of wool per hectare to 80 kilos of wool per hectare mm-hmm. and you know we had it, that was through um uh pastures you know satellite and uh, food measurement and and biomass measurement there's a whole lot of great tech that's come in now i feel at the moment we've sort of our we've sort of our production curve's not growing as quick as it is mm-hmm. but there's a whole lot of other great gains so i think you know we've got to start looking for gains in different places now right so um i think the advent of agritech which i think is still in its um enthusiastic mode there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of people looking for answers yeah. um 
But at the same time, it's about um, not expecting any big revolution. So agriculture is like any business, it's incremental change. So each year, if you always say the thing, the plan, do, check, act. So every year you just plan, you do something, you execute it, you measure how it went. And I go, can we use this bit of nutrition, software, technology, and leverage to the next level. So labor's changed a lot in my time. In, when yeah. I was farming and right up probably into the last probably 20 years, you haven't really had to worry too much about it. We always had towns full of labor. Yeah. Um, and all us young farmers, when we weren't growing, we were out shearing or crutching or driving other people's tractors and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Labor's become a big issue now. And I think that's mm. gonna, I think that'll define a lot of agriculture. Um, and the other thing is, um, less and less people you know the districts all around around australia there's not many farmers left in them Mm -mm. right so something as simple as i mean i remember having a fire in the mid 90s and within half an hour we had 40 50 units in the paddock wow right these days it wouldn't be that many people within you know 100 kilometers of the farm yeah right so those things are going to change and i think and this is where the charge for the millennials and the people they're working with again is this is the new challenge. I think the new challenge is capital management. So I think the risks have got bigger because the amount of capital required mm. to farm now is much harder. So I think the new challenges are going to be very financial. There's going to be a lot of strong financial challenges. So very yeah. intelligent use of risk and money and, mm-hmm. and, and capital and stuff. I think that's where a lot of the new challenges are going to be. Um, I think, you know, we've seen the inevitable rise of robotics and I think I can't, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff people playing around. You know, precision farming has pretty much made things. You don't drive anything anymore. You sit there like a train driver pushing buttons and watching YouTube. But, you know, <laughs> I think that next step's probably going to have to come. And I think things like COVID have, are going to accelerate that. You know, yeah. the, the acceleration to robotics, I think, is inevitable. Mm. And I think that's, from a nerdy point of view, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. But from a local town farmer point of view, I don't know. We're going to lose a bit doing that. Yeah. yeah. So communities will just get smaller because there'll be less and less labour, yeah? Mm. Um, farmers might become fly-in, fly-out like miners. Yeah. Right? They might. End, I mean, most farmers love spending their time at the coast. Yeah. They might just stay there. Yeah. And come in and look after their robots once a week or something. I don't know. It, it's going to change. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, we still grow stuff, yeah? Yeah. Right? Um, we... I went to an agri-tech conference in Melbourne into last year and the most interesting, the most fascinating thing there was a guy who was had an automated lettuce or leafy vegetable growing factory and it was in this big warehousey type structure. It only take four people to do it. It automatically planted the vegetables, grew the vegetables, harvested them, packaged them, mm-hmm. right, in this big shed, right? Wow. And I thought, oh, where are you going to sell this thing, you know? And I go, you know, do you know where most of his sales were in Asia? Because people don't want to work on farms anymore. Mm -hmm. They have all these people, huge unemployment, everything, but they can't get people to work on farms. So he goes, they have the land. And the other thing is they're building cities over all the best uh, productive land in the world. So the challenge is we still have to grow food. Mm. And everyone worries whether we're going to get all the food from, et cetera. (laughs) And and I think it's just... you know, farmers are probably the some of the best innovators you'll ever, ever come across, yeah. right? Fascinating. And outside the farming community, you'll never really, you probably don't notice it, but the innovation is just phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. So um, the changes I've seen, my changes that I've experienced are very production focused. I think the next changes are going to be a, 
they're going to be probably just as dramatic, but probably they're not going to be the same things. You know, I don't, mm. I can't see us, you know, trying to get up with a magic fertilizer that's going to take wheat from three to six tons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but I can see some amazing other stuff. Yeah. Mm. I was going to ask you about what you think the ag industry will look like in say 2050, but you've kind of already touched on it. So I would love to ask you then, what's your hopes for the future of the agricultural industry and food production? Um, uh, my hopes for agriculture is that it doesn't worry about what people think about it, mm-hmm. right? It just does, right? Agriculture um, have been very good at just solving the problem right in front of them, mm-hmm. right? Um, so don't... My hopes for agriculture is people stop thinking... Um, you know, be guided by your tradition, but don't be bound by it, mm-hmm. right? So... Really, if you see, you just it's like I say in business. The, agriculture is a business like any other. Your first, your first job is to feed your family. Yeah. Your second job is to feed the world. Yeah. Right? So first of all, just say, okay, my job is I want to grow X. Or I want to, let's say, right back, I want to create food. Mm-hmm. Right? Currently, I grow wheat. Is that the best use of my time, energy, land, labor, intelligence, etc.? Right? And really go back to first principles. And that's my hope for agriculture. You know, it can get very political, mm-hmm. right? Forget the politics, right? You know, I've noticed that some people, that, you know, the people that I've always admired in agriculture my whole life, you don't even notice them. They're invisible. Yeah. But they're amazing. They're really amazing. Mm. They just slowly improve and grow and change. And, and they do the stuff that everybody in town goes, oh, what are you doing that for? <laughs> right? Um, I'd encourage everybody to, and that's my hope for agriculture, you know, and don't think it has to look the same as it has before. Yeah. You know, the agriculture you have now, your grandfather wouldn't recognise, mm-hmm. right? I'm hoping that it'll be the same. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that our technology also remains open. As we get bigger, the, the, the temptation is for us to close in mm-hmm. on ourselves. So one thing, I, when I grew up on farming, people shared everything, mm-hmm. right? I hope that continues, right? <laughs> And when you grow up in business world, you know, so I've had 20 years, I've had eight years in farming and 20 years in, in other business, in the software business. Um, and what I miss about agriculture is this, this massive open sharing of everything. There's no mm-hmm. real secrets because you're not competing against each other and that's brilliant, right? Yeah. And so this share, I hope people continue to do that. Um, I hope we tenue, continue to export our tech. So one of the problems is, is we're not big enough in Australia to feed the world, right? Because yeah. we don't grow enough, really. <laughs> um, but we do have amazing tech and innovation because our environment's harsh, right? Let's let's get that tech to countries who need to feed themselves. So we have no hope of feeding starving people around the world with a small amount of food we grow. But our tech could. Mm-hmm. So one of the things is I hope that we continue to export our brains and our tech to other countries so they can feed themselves. They're not going to um, not buy our food because we don't grow enough anyway. But, yeah. you know, um, so because you've got to have a purpose beyond money. Yeah. Right? And feeding people is a pretty good purpose. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> pretty noble. <laughs> it is. It is noble. Yeah. But... I always say that in all industries, software business, uh, software businesses, farming businesses, mining businesses, any business, you got to be careful. Don't drink your own Kool Aid. You know, like yeah. right at the end of the day, remember what you're there to do. Yeah. Feed your family, then feed everybody else. Yeah. Right. And my hope is that people stick to those first principles. And um, I, I look, you know, agriculture's um, 
I, I, I kept on convincing my sons to go and to do ag stuff. And I said, look, <laughs> agri-tech and agri-business is probably one of the most exciting industries in the world right now. Um, yep. Um, invisible to most people. Um, and, I, in, and you'd say if you have any your urban friends who go and do something in ag, they tend to stay there forever. Yeah. Right? Um, and people don't want to hear stories about, you know, dying wheat crops and sheep and stuff. But if you show them the cool stuff, talk about the cool stuff like you're doing. Like, mm. like, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think it's got a massive, uh, massive future. Yeah. What a beautiful way to sum up what I feel like has been such an enlightening interview. Thank you, David. The last question we always finish on is if someone's gotten something out of this today, and I'm sure so many will, how can they get in touch with you, learn more about you, find out more about the journey or yourself and your wife as well? Um, yeah, so Nat and I are always available to obviously talk like today. Um, yeah. We've got to the point in our career where we're happy to, to help. You know, we really, Nat and I both love helping people. Mm-hmm. Like, so especially if you're a millennial and you're trying to take over agriculture, just give us a call. You know, yeah. we'll have a coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other stuff is just send us an email and um, we can send you the links later. Yeah. And, and, um, and um yeah just ask yeah you know um and that's the best way you know um like in this business and in ag um i get the most enjoyment the things i really get enjoyment out of is solving problems or talking like we have today solving these real problems and helping people who are um now at at the start of well, not maybe the start, but, you know, in, in that journey, that early journey of the agribusiness career. Yeah. Just going, okay, how about I try this and what about this and what about that? And, and you look, um, I'll have a coffee with you and talk about it any day. Yeah. And um, that's it. That's awesome. David, thank you so much for your time today and sitting down with me. It has been a privilege um, and just, yeah, I've gotten so much out of it. So thank you so much for your time. And then thank you very much for inviting me on. I've, 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 um, I'd love your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.